Thank you, Lord, that you never forsake us, you never leave us, and we want to ask you to help us understand you more now as we open your word. Pray that you would encourage us and help us to better understand how we can encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, please take seat and open up First Thessalonians, that's on page 836. So we, we've had, obviously, Advent and the Christmas season, and so we finished up with uh, Thessalonians for a little bit, and now we're back in again, picking up in chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 6 this morning, thinking about this theme that you can see here, encourage one another, because trials are unsettling and Satan is tempting. So page 836, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll actually read from verse 17, chapter 2, that'll help us a little bit. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now some of you have uh, returned from as far away as, as Cork, like Ruth. Some of you have returned from South Africa some of you have been all over the world over the Christmas period, and we're still awaiting some of our church family to get back. And that's because we all have an appreciation of the importance of, of time together. And so when we're far away for long periods of time and you're concerned about things that are happening back home, there, an urgency develops in you to, to go back, to be with people and to do whatever it takes to get there. You know, even the flights might be expensive. You may have to take holidays to go, but you understand the significance and the need to be with the people you care about and love for. Love, um, love, yeah, <laughs> love for, love. And especially when things are going on that you're troubled by, and you want to be there in person. 
And there's that similar dynamic going on in this section that we're reading from this letter, 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul hasn't seen these people he cares and loves for in a long period of time. And he's very concerned about them. He, through his preaching, the church had come to life, but he got kicked out of that area and hasn't been able to return. And he knows that things have been difficult for them. And so he's very concerned to get back to them out of his love for them to see how they're doing. He just couldn't stand being away and not knowing how things were. So he says in verse one and two, so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. That's Paul and Silas who who were with him. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in the faith. He just, he couldn't stand not knowing how they were and he wanted to encourage them. And encouraging one another is critical in this section. He wanted to encourage them. He couldn't stand not knowing. You see that comes up in verse five as well where he says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. And so he sends Timothy in verse two, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Now that was a very costly thing for for Paul to do. Timothy was very special to him. They had a very close relationship. They were like family, like father and son. And Paul was in quite a difficult context where he was and had experienced a lot of opposition and was isolated. And yet he was deeply concerned for how the Thessalonians were. And so he said, look, we'll stay here. We haven't been able to get back, but we're going to send Timothy. And that was a very costly thing for, for him to do, to lose Timothy being with them and being among them. But it shows how significantly important encouragement is because he expressly sent him with the purpose of strengthening and encouraging them, the end of verse two, in the faith. He sent him for that purpose. But the encouragement was costly. But the costliness of it shows just how significant encouraging one another really is. Timothy, described as a brother, a co-worker, a fellow Christian, he sent for that purpose. And you have to ask yourself, well, what, you know, if, if you were on the receiving end of Timothy arriving, what kind of things do you think he, he might have been doing? He'd hardly, you know, turn up and say, oh, how are you doing? And you say, yeah, I'm grand yourself. I am grand. It would have been purposeful the time that he spent with them. And it would have been giving his time to discuss how their faith was, how they're struggling, how he might encourage them. And a lot of listening, a lot of talking, a lot of spending time over the scripture together, praying, eating together, reassuring them. And that was needed, very much needed. And so every community needs to be deliberate about encouraging one another. And we need to be deliberate about it. It's costly, but the costliness of it 
is indicative of the need and significance it has. Especially for us here in a community like this, where we are spread across the city and work very different schedules, have whole different um, timetables to one another, language differences and so on. It's costly, but giving in that personal present way that Timothy did and was is essential. Giving time, energy. There's a lot of coming and going in a community like ours. And so that itself is demanding. You might only be able to encourage somebody for one week. You might not see them again. You might encourage somebody for six months and then they, they leave with work and other commitments. And that's costly. And we're tempted to withdraw because we think, oh, they're going to be gone in X amount of time. But the costliness demonstrates to us actually the importance of encouraging. Because for each of us, wherever it is we are settled, persevering as a Christian is difficult. And so we need one another to take that costly effort with each other. And so I want to encourage you to invite each other around to your home, around your tables, invite each other into your lives, invite each other into your, your heart, be, be real, pray with one another. You know, it's costly to say where you're in need of encouragement. And it's often costly to be the encourager. But that is what we are called to. It's needed because it's not easy to, to follow Jesus. It's, it's not something that just you can do in isolation. You're not designed to do it in isolation. And we don't need to pretend in any way that we don't need encouragement or that we're not finding things difficult. We don't need to try to keep up appearances in some way. We all need that meaningful friendship and relationship to open up with one another is very life-giving. To give and to receive that strength and encouragement is the very fabric of what being a Christian and being part of a Christian community is all about. Jesus' community like ours is aware of the reality and needs that we have as humans. We're not trying to hide that or suppress that or pretend. And as people coming together for encouragement and to strengthen one another, we will find it costly, but it's a lot more costly when we don't. And we need to be deliberate about it because secondly, trials are unsettling. Trials are unsettling. See, in verses 3, Paul says, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. <clears throat> Jesus told uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a parable of, of various soils where the seed is sown. And on one of those soils, the, the seed lands and it, it comes up very vibrantly and, and strong. And it, it's green and seems to be growing. But then it quickly dies away. And Jesus explains that the reason it died away was that it's like someone who first comes to accept and enjoy the ways of the kingdom, did Jesus' way, his words. But when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly 
fall away. And that's what's going on here. Paul is aware that trials are unsettling. And he's concerned that these trials and these persecutions will cause this young church to fall away from, from Jesus. So for any of us, being ridiculed or being ghosted in some way is an unsettling experience. If it's a one-off or if it's a rare thing, it's hurtful, but you can, you can move on from that. But if it's ongoing, it can become deeply unsettling. And Paul himself experienced a lot of ridicule and hate, trolling of, of the time, except not only of the keyboard type, as, as painful as that can be, but actually physically, he was physically abused for being different, for being a Christian in a culture that didn't welcome talk of, of Jesus, caused deep uns, upset. People were deeply unsettled by it, believers and non-believers alike. And it caused plenty of protests and, and upheaval and people's homes being raided in this instance and so on. And Paul was worried in his absence that these baby believers would be so unsettled by the reaction that they got and were getting from others that they would just give up on the whole thing. Whatever about how they started when he was there. What about now when he's long gone and things have continued to be difficult? And knowing that they know things are difficult for him. And so he sent Timothy to encourage them, even though they knew that this would be the case. He says that in verse 3, you know quite well that we were destined for them for these trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. So if it is you're considering Jesus, considering becoming a Christian, considering being part of a Christian community, you need to understand that it will be deeply unsettling and bring trials and bring persecutions. You need to know that. You're not buying into an easier way of life in that respect. But it's one thing to be told that, and it's quite another to actually be experiencing it and to be experiencing it at length. Some of you have scary stories of what you experienced in your culture because of the Bible. Looking at Tesfaye here, in jail at one point back in Ethiopia. So we're talking about, you know, when you, when you actually really begin to experience these things, that's quite different to being told. And so these guys came to know Jesus in what was a highly aggressive context. Paul had to, had to flee and he hadn't been back since. But that aggression wasn't just a one-off thing. The question Paul was having it from a distance was, well, will they still be holding on with those pressures accumulating? And we need encouragement because the trials that we experience are unsettling. Even if we know that that is what to expect, even if we have been told that again and again, when you experience them, experience them they are unsettling, even if we get it in principle. And you end up asking yourself, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I bothering? Is this really worth it? And so Paul writes out of this loving concern. He's not been made rich or famous by his connection to them. Quite the opposite. He's not gaining any reputation either. Again, the opposite. 
But Paul has come to see in Jesus something that is actually superior to an easy life. Something that's truly worth living and dying for. You might be asking, well, why would I even consider any of this if there brings so much trial and, and so much upset and persecution? Because it actually is the ultimate life-giving truth. And Paul came to understand what Jesus himself lived and died for, a wholeness that is worth being unsettled by and for. It's to be expected, but it's still unsettling when trials come for holding to what Jesus has to say when that's unwelcome in the culture around you. So, here again, we need to encourage one another. Know that should you pursue Jesus, that unsettling reality will come. And sometimes the Spirit himself is the one who is going to unsettle you. He'll unsettle you in order to change you. And he will use some of these trials in order to change you. And actually, obedience itself will unsettle you as you seek to resist the things you want versus the things which the scriptures are commanding you towards. That itself is unsettling. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is unsettling. And God uses that to shape and to mold us. We can expect that, but it is still unsettling. And we need to encourage one another in it, discuss that, talk it through one with another, pray it through one with another. Because no matter how much you tell yourself you know that that is true in principle, when you experience it in practice, it's quite another thing. And you will be more unsettled than you thought it would be. And you'll ask yourself, is, is it really worth it? Why am I doing this? Again, encourage one another in these instances because trials are unsettling for all of us. And encourage one another because Satan is tempting. See that he mentioned Satan stopping Paul coming in the first instance in verse 18. And now he says, he, he qualifies the, the root of his concern here, verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and that our efforts might have been useless. Strong words. There's a poem here. This is a book that I did for my leaving sir back in the day. Ruth will recognize it. It's a poetry book. Lucy recognizes it too. All the paddies are nodding at me. It's um, called Soundings. It's a poetry book simply for English back in the day, you know, back in the 1600s. And it's, there's a poem here, which I can't pronounce the title very well, so I'm relying on um, Estelle here. La Belle Dame Sans Merci. You say it nicer. Say it for me. You see? That <laughs> sounds much nicer, doesn't it? And what does it mean? Oh, the beautiful lady without mercy. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's by a guy called John Keats, right? Now, it's not... It's not the poem is not saying beautiful women are, are going to be the death of you, okay? It, it's, that's not the point. But this, it starts out with the, with the narrator seeing a knight who is alone, and he's just loitering there, and he's pale, and it's a very cold image. And the narrator asks, basically, what's, what's happening? Why are you here? What, what's your story? I'm not going to read you the poem. But he goes on to talk about how he meets this beautiful lady, 
She's like a fairy. She's very enchanting. And they go off together on his horse and they go through these very beautiful scenes and beautiful experiences. And he just loses track of time and he's mesmerized by her sweetness. And she takes him back to her abode and it just turns into to nightmare, really. But it started out as sweet and she she kissed she kissed him and it was all so beautiful and then everything suddenly changes and he finds basically these scenes of devastation and death and finds out that he's not the only one who had been lured by this beautiful lady without mercy. And they all pale like he is now, kings and princes and warriors. Death pale they were all. And they all had been victims of this beautiful woman with with no mercy. And he wakes up from this horrid scene of all of these people who similarly had been enraptured by her. And he's left there loitering, pale, cold, And you're driven back to the narrator again who's asking about the scene. It's really deeply vivid poem. It's always stuck with me. It sweeps sweeps you up and leaves you with a lot of unanswered questions. And that's, that's the whole point. That's what makes it so memorable and effective. But what is clear about it is, and this is where this ties into our theme for, for now in terms of Satan is tempting. What's clear is that she promises one thing but the reality was very different. And the process of alluring was very sweet, but the outcome was awful. And he wasn't the only one to fall for her charm and and to be ruined. And the narrator looks on and he says, "What's, what's happened here? And the idea is, as you hear the narrator ask that question, and as you look at the story of the man, the knight at arms, you're meant to draw lessons in and say, okay, how can I make sure I'm not left alone and palely loitering? How can I make sure I'm not seduced and ruined by whatever I find tempting? And that's Paul's concern here. He can't stand not knowing if Satan has ruined their lives, presenting beautiful things to them of whatever form, but actually he's merciless and intends their ruin. He's going to use their trials in this case to break them down. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and that our efforts might have been useless. So Satan finds ways to seduce. He's happy to use a carrot where he's tempting you towards something you want. He's happy to use a stick where he frightens you with something. It doesn't make any difference to him. His goal is to veer you away from faith in Jesus by by whatever means. And in this case, it's the stick, if you understand that imagery, of the trials. But the stick of the trials comes with the carrot as well. Because he's saying, in effect, to those who are suffering, you know, this would all stop if you just stopped being so committed to this Jesus lifestyle. Everything would just be so much easier if you tone it down a bit. Life would would be normal again. You could go back to normal. You could be accepted again. You could lose all that weirdo hatred vibes that you get in work every day. And Paul is blunt about the reality of Satan and that he is tempting. 
how convincing he can be. And he feared that Satan would have succeeded and that everything would have proved to be for nothing, lost. Thankfully, it's not the case as we'll read on next week. But any kind of scam operates from pretense. We've been thinking about this lately. They seek to deceive. They lure you in. They take a little and then a lot until it's too late. And Satan scams from pretense as well. He doesn't hand you a business card and say, call me if you would like me to ruin your life. Here's my number. His approach looks and sounds almost unnoticeable. Hardly even recognizable. Sounds genuine, convincing, attractive. Not sinful, not harmful. It's, you know, it's just a little bit of deserved escapism. Harm is that. Where do you escape to rather than turn to God or turn to others for encouragements? What are you drawn to reward yourself with to cope with the harder edges of life with Jesus? Where is it that you know you are compromising and you know that you're hiding it? It won't be the same for all of us. It'll all be very different for each of us, depending on our own experience and our own disposition. Soft pornography might do nothing for me. It might be your downfall. I might not care about money. You might become obsessed with it. It's going to be different for all of us. And it's going to be things that are not particularly obvious necessarily. But we have to ask ourselves, what is it we are drawn to that is corroding our faith, that's promising some kind of relief and satisfaction, and is causing us to sidestep that little bit from the Bible and from Jesus, or to withdraw that little bit from community and from taking that step of seeking encouragement from others with whatever this thing is? Maybe it's a secret thing. Maybe it's a habitual thing. Maybe it's something we haven't even realized is a problem because people are not close enough to us to point it out. That's a dangerous place to be. What does your Instagram feed say about your escape mechanisms? What what do your temptations say? What do your wants say about you and to you? How are you tempted to pursue good desires but in a compromised or wrong way? Where do you say to yourself, I deserve this and no one need know? What do you think is off limits to others around you? What gives you pleasure but leaves you feeling guilty and dirty and regretful? How, in other words, is the tempter tempting you? And he could use the trial of your own sin and regret and tie you up in knots and guilt about that to keep you from Jesus too. So how can... He can use a time of suffering also to expose a new weakness within you, to pull you down just when you think that you're flying high and you've gotten through a really hard time. You can actually be more exposed than ever on the other side of that. And Satan will happily wait it out and then seek to strike you when you're feeling you're through something. He could be tempting you to go no further with this community here in Emmanuel and what we represent but he does do it. He is tempting. That, that's his remit. 
and he'll use the vinegar of hardship or the honey of pleasure. It's all the same to him. So we've got to encourage one another. We have to encourage one another because Satan is tempting. We've got to be open and real with, with one another, with these realities that we experience. Push into relationship with one another. Especially when you think, oh, that, you know, that, that, that's never going to be a problem for that person. Every time I have encountered somebody who slipped up in some really nightmare way, a way that's affected them, their ministries, their families, every time people say, oh, I never would have saw that coming. We can never assume with one another. We need to encourage one another because these things are a reality for all of us. And Paul couldn't stand not knowing what was going on. Such was the depth of his concern. So let's push into relationship one with another. Lest all that we professed up till now might have been useless. We've mentioned many ways coming up over the next while, the weekend away. It's open to you even if you've just arrived here this morning. We've got the Real Change group meeting here on Thursdays. That's another opportunity. We have opportunities to meet one-to-one -to, -one to discuss these things and to be purposeful in the relationships we already have one with another. But we need to encourage one another because for all of us, regardless of where it is we're coming from, trials associated with the Jesus way are unsettling. They're unsettling, and Satan is tempting. So we need to be deliberate about these things. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you for these words, Father, and we pray that you by your spirit will help us to strengthen and encourage one another in the faith so that we might not be unsettled by trials, that we might not be tempted by Satan. Help us to do that. Help us to be real one with another. Help us to be deliberate about it. And we pray, Lord, that we might grow in the faith. We pray, as Paul discovers about the Thessalonians, that good news of our faith and love may, may come and that we might not be seduced by anything false. So we ask for you to have mercy on us and help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.